Hey everyone, Ellie Honig here. I'm excited that my Friday conversations with law students for the Third Degree Podcast are now exclusively for members of Cafe Insider. Here's this week's episode. I hope you enjoy it. And as always, please write to us with your questions and thoughts at letters at cafe.com. From Cafe, this is Third Degree. I'm Ellie Honig. Welcome back, everybody. It is another of our Friday episodes. You know I look forward to these, and I am thrilled to welcome back for her second appearance, Safina Mekli from NYU. Safina, great to see you. Thanks, Ellie. It's great to see you, and it's great to be the first law student co-host to return to third degree. <laughs> so now I have two firsts. So a lot has changed in the last three weeks. Most notably, I think for the better it feels like the world is slowly coming around. The vaccines are starting to happen. I do not have mine yet, but my parents do, which is wonderful. So I'm feeling optimistic. So am I. I actually just got my first dose of the vaccine. Oh, um, so it feels like, you know, spring is coming in many ways. And one of those is feeling a little safer in the world, which is really great. Absolutely. I'm really glad to hear that. So even as we get into the spring, even as sort of Donald Trump recedes a little bit into the rearview mirror, there is still major, major legal news. The big story right now is the trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin in the charged murder of George Floyd. This is so big and so important. And I'm curious, Safina, how are people talking about this on campus or in your classes or in your networks at law school? I think mostly people have been talking sort of broadly about police reform, police abolition, reckoning with institutional systemic racism. I feel like since the summer, um, those conversations have been sort of front and center in how people have been talking about what happened with George Floyd. And I think that people are thinking about the trial, have occasionally been talking about the trial, but I think people are... One, skeptical that a conviction is on its way and maybe hopeful. Some folks that I spoke to were sort of hopeful that this might be a moment where we see sort of justice done publicly um, in this case. And I think that there's also sort of a hope that even if the officer is found guilty, that we still keep having conversations about police reform and sort of what led to this moment, because I think there's sort of a lot of reckoning that folks want to do about how we got here in the first place. I find it really interesting that that you said there seems to be some view that, that a conviction is unlikely. Um, it is a tricky case. It is a media case, which inherently makes it more difficult to try. There is a race element. There's a policing element. However, when you strip that all away, to me, that video makes it really clear. But listen, I'll tell you, I'm the one with the experience. Anyone who banks on a verdict is a fool because you can never tell what a jury's going to do because juries are just collections of human beings and human beings will surprise you. So uh, we will see, and obviously we're going through jury selection right now, which is such an important part of the process. And I know we were talking a little bit about jury selection. So what are your thoughts so far and, and any questions you have about how jury selection has been going? I was so surprised to learn how long the jury selection process in this case would take. That was surprising to me. But it made me wonder sort of generally about jury selection and specifically if social media and the media landscape broadly 
has changed how the jury process works. And I'm wondering from your experience, if you think social media and the media landscape have changed how attorneys think about jury selection. It has changed completely because of social media. And and I'll tell you what I mean. First of all, jury selection itself, something I've done many, many times, is this bizarre, sort of incredibly difficult, it's like the world's strangest game show. I mean, you walk into this room as an attorney and you are faced with 50, 60, 70, however many they can fit in the in the courtroom at a time. Obviously, it's different now with COVID. But strangers, strangers to you, strangers to each other, people just chosen by whatever the random system is. And you get this little snapshot of each person. You know a couple things about them, where they live maybe, generally speaking, what they read, if they have any strong views. And then you have to try to guess, extrapolate whether they're going to be good for you or not. And it's incredibly hard to do. And and further complicating it is when you have a media case. Now, I've done a good number of media cases, not like this, not national news every day, front page, international news, but media cases. And in the old days, when I was doing trials, the judge would always have to go through this routine with the jurors. The, The judge would say something like, this case may be in the media. And so I advise you that if you see an article in the newspaper, Safina, newspapers are these things people used to read. Never heard of them. Yeah, <laughs> um, they were printed on paper. Or if you see something on TV, they would say, don't read it, you know, put the newspaper away or, or change the channel on the TV. And if you inadvertently do see something, come in and tell me. And that would happen sometimes. A, a juror would come in in the middle of trial and say, my wife had on the you know WPIX local news <laughs> and they did something that I realized 30 seconds in was about this trial and I ran out of the room and she changed the channel. And fine, <laughs> you can get through that. But I will tell you that even before sort of this social media age, I always sort of assumed people knew about a case and I pro- assumed really people were probably Googling it, right? For, for better or for worse, one way or another. And by the way, defense lawyers believe that even in the old days too, because This is the thing defense lawyers do in media cases. They mount PR campaigns, right? They've been doing it since the dawn of time, since the printing press was invented because they want to get the good word out there. And now with social media, which is so ever-present and such a big factor, I would just, if I was picking a jury in this case, I would just absolutely assume every jury is going to be Googling this, seeing things on social media, and very much not only aware of the case, but also aware of how they will be perceived in their social media circles. Because imagine, imagine if you were an extremely liberal person and your friends knew or you believed eventually would find out it's an anonymous jury, but you have to assume people will find out eventually. Imagine the pressure that puts on you or imagine you're in a very pro-police circle of friends and associates. Imagine the pressure that would put on you. So to me, that is that is a huge obstacle and a huge problem really that candidly, I don't think our courts are equipped to deal with. We used to, you know, sometimes try to figure out where people Googling. But I think if you talk to people who've been on juries, they will tell you, yeah, of course I was looking it up. I mean, you know, we're, we're all human beings. How would we not? But I don't think our courts are ready for this. And by the way, the courts are slow on this. I mean, courts weren't even asking about Google and the internet until the end of my time at the SDNY, 2010 or 11 or 12. It started to be this newfangled thing that judges would ask about. Wow. Yeah, I mean, you know, and by the way, back then there was, Twitter barely existed or didn't exist, was not a factor. Facebook, same thing. So let me ask you sort of a a couple of questions. First of all, I know you've thought maybe about going into defense lawyering at some point. Let's assume hypothetically you were defending somebody in a high-profile case. How would you feel about mounting a PR campaign? Do you think it's ethical, unethical, acceptable, unacceptable to get in front of the cameras, to, to stop and talk to the press outside the courthouse? 
with the intention of maybe someone in the potential jury pool or a juror will see this and rally to my side. Yeah, it's such a hard question. And it sounds like a hypo from one of my ethics classes. But I think I think there are sort of two instincts that I'm balancing. The first is wanting to sort of preserve the fiction that jurors can be sort of discriminate hearers of the evidence. We'll focus on evidence that's admitted into trial and make decisions based on that against the reality that jurors are people who are influenced by their communities, their social circles, their upbringings, and especially the media. And I think social media is unique because not only do we get our news from social media, but we hear our peers' opinions. We get, we form our own opinions based on social media. We get updates on all kinds of things. And so I think it's impossible to assume that folks aren't going to use social media during the course of a trial. And, you know, your number one duty as a defense attorney is to do the best that you can to advocate for your client. So I think sort of within the permissible ethics rules, if that included ensuring that my client's voice had sort of fair airing in public opinion, I I think that that makes sense. Yeah. And another dimension, by the way, is looking at potential jurors' old social media feeds, right? Because what better way? I mean, like I said, you get such limited information about these folks. You know, let me look at your Twitter feed for the last two years. That'll tell me a heck of a lot more than a little questionnaire about, you know, what borough you live in and and that kind of thing. Um, And I remember actually when we started doing this, there was a little bit of a, is this okay question? You know, we would send paralegals, run downstairs, enter this name if the, if the jury was not anonymous, sometimes they were, and look at their Facebook feed. And I think it's perfectly fine. I think the legal community has generally settled. You can't fake like you're somebody else and then try to befriend that person. But if all you're doing is looking at publicly available information, I think it's foolish not to do that. And so, Safina, let me ask you this. I understand you have actually served on a criminal jury. Now, this fascinates me because I know very, I know many people who've argued cases to juries. I know very, very few who've actually sat on a criminal jury. <laughs> Tell us about that experience. Yeah, it was incredible. You know, you hear in law school that attorneys are always skeptical of the juror who's like really eager and excited to be there. I was totally that person. Um, I was thinking about applying to law school. I was working downtown at the time and I became an American citizen in 2013. So I was just like so thrilled to get the opportunity to serve on a jury. And the case was a drunk driving case and wasn't in law school at the time. So I'm not sure sort of what the law was that we were looking at, but the dynamics of being a member of a jury were so fascinating to me. We had one sort of holdout juror who made everything more complicated than it needed to be. We had tension, intrigue, there was drama. It totally felt like a movie to be in that jury room. So how did you come out as a jury? Did you hang or did you get unanimous? So on one of the counts, we were unanimous. And on one of them, we were hung. And something that I think was interesting is sort of in order to get the unanimous count, we had to sort of be hung on the other. It was totally a negotiation between all of us. I I remember very specifically, there was one moment, I think we were on day five of deliberations, and it was just, we weren't getting to a unanimous decision on that second count. And at one point, one of the jurors in the room stood up, he smacked the table, his chair fell back, and he was like, we have to come to a decision. Wow. And I think that that helped us just decide we couldn't get there. And and I have to ask, was was the outcome guilty or not guilty on the count you were unanimous on? It was guilty. Mm-hmm. 
Now, it's so interesting to hear you talk about the way that the jury you sat on ultimately reached a compromise verdict of sorts. And that is exactly why I think it's so important what happened in the Minnesota court this week regarding the third degree murder charge. So here's the deal. The prosecution originally charged three counts. The lead count, the most serious count, the hardest to prove is the second degree murder. In the middle was this third degree, what we call depraved mind murder. And then the lowest one was this second degree manslaughter, right? They're punishable by 45, 25, and 10 years respectively. The judge threw out the third degree count before the trial. But then after we went through the whole appellate process, the Court of Appeals and the Minnesota Supreme Court essentially said, no, 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 you got to put that back in. So now it's back in the case. And I think it's so important because in my experience and apparently in your experience as a juror, what juries do sometimes, especially in hotly contested cases, is they compromise. And there's a phrase for this. I mean, it's not super clever, but we, we would call it a compromise verdict. And if you're the prosecutor, you want to give the jury as many avenues as possible to get to a guilty verdict of some type or other. Now, I understand if they come out sort of in the middle here, there will be people who will say that's not justice, but I think it's a lot more palatable for people who are seeking that kind of justice to say, well, look, he was convicted of the middle count. He's facing a max of 25 years. I mean, to me, that's a, a big, big difference. Do you think it's problematic for our system that juries maybe sometimes horse trade? You know, look, I'll give on this if you give on that. I mean, I know it's not the way they teach it in law school, but do you see that as a problem? I feel like my law student brain wants to say, of course, it's a problem because they're not applying the facts to the law. And, you know, jurors are told that that's their responsibility in the jury room. But having been in the room itself, it's it's um, totally an example of where the rules that we set sort of butt up against reality. And it's a group of 12 people trying to come to a decision about what to do in a really complicated case. And there are jurors who were selected for perhaps their variation on the ideological spectrum or their diversity of backgrounds. So you're bringing in completely different people to come to a decision about what to do. And I think once you've exhausted the sort of what you think are the clear answers under the law, it's sort of by necessity that these kinds of compromises are made. So even if I think it's not a perfect law school application of how the law should work, I think it makes sense as far as my perception of how reality is. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Look, this is the ultimate human exercise. You take 12 human beings, you really don't give them that much of an instruction. I mean, you'll get your formal legal instructions. Here are the elements of the law under New York state law. You'll get the evidence. But the thing that people maybe don't realize is nobody tells you as a juror how you're supposed to do this. Some juries go count by count. Some juries go, let's start with the first witness and talk all the way through it. Some just go, okay, where's everybody at? Right off the bat, right? And so it is a human process. And here's how human it is. There is such thing as the Friday verdict and the lunch verdict. Now, let me explain. The Friday verdict. Anytime you have a jury out, everyone's speculating. When do they come back? When do they come back? This will happen in the Chauvin case. You know how many times juries come back Friday at 3.30 p.m.? <laughs> because they don't want to come back next week. They want it over with. And we would just sit there on Friday afternoons just waiting for verdicts to roll in. And then there's the lunch verdict. Um, you will never get a verdict at 11.30 a.m. You will get verdicts at 1.30 p.m. Why? Because people want their last court-supplied free lunch. <laughs> and I say that because it, it's true and it's the way things work, but it's just a reminder that this is ultimately, as much as we try to make it a wherefore and thus and unto, very legally constrained process, it's a human process. The other thing is, 
judges and our law, and I don't know if this, tell me when I'm through this, if, if this happened to you, actually do pressure juries directly to try to come to a unanimous verdict. It's something we call an Allen charge. And what happens is when a jury first sends out a note saying, we're stuck, we can't agree on count three, eventually the judge will give this charge. And basically the judge brings them out and browbeats them. Defense lawyers hate it because defense lawyers just want to get their hung jury and go home. Prosecutors, it's our last hope, right? I mean, if you have a judge Allen charging, you're, you're like, this is your Hail Mary. And they will say, look, I'm paraphrasing the Allen charge here, but the judge will say to the jurors, you're not to give up your individual convictions. That said, you are to keep an open mind. If you don't come to a unanimous verdict, this case may well have to be retried and it'll be another jury just like all of you. And it is a pressure tactic applied by judges. I actually had a case where the jury said they were stuck. The judge gave the Allen charge and then a day or two later, they came back with a conviction. I've had another case, two cases where the judge gave that charge and it did not undo the deadlock, but it can. And so it's more than just a reality that people sometimes tend to negotiate and bargain. It's actually embedded in our laws. Did you all have that in your jury? Did your judge ever bring you out and say like, come on, folks, let's try to get this unanimous? Absolutely. And I think one of the reasons is we were sort of set up to fail because I remember when we got impaneled, the judge gave us sort of a time estimate, like the case would be two days or something. And by the end of day two, which of course was Friday at like a 4 p.m., we told the judge that we couldn't come to a decision. He sent us back and told us to report back to court on Monday after giving us the speech that we had sort of not done our duty and we, we should try harder. It's pressure, right? Did you feel pressure when the judge did that? I absolutely felt pressure. And it, in some ways, I think this is like me being sort of a type A student. I wanted to like do right by the job that I was given you know, we sent out the note saying we couldn't come to a decision. And that in and of itself felt like failure. But, you know, what it really is, is people perceiving the evidence and the law differently. And, you know, it's set up so that we all sort of interpret things differently. But it almost was framed as like a failure of duty to not have come to a decision quite yet. That's exactly how it's framed. And I wonder if that may increase the chances that we get a verdict, at least some verdict out of this Derek Chauvin jury, because I think these jurors will realize, and if you look at their summaries of information that are available about them publicly, they seem to understand the importance of the moment. And I think they will understand that if they hang across the board, everyone's just going to have to do this again and put the parties through this again and George Floyd's family through this again and the public through this again. So I imagine that this could be a scenario where we see that kind of, of a verdict. Now, I have to tell you, I'm a little surprised you made it through a jury because just looking at you sort of demographically, you know, for, I'm using the old school sort of prosecutor's playbook here, but you're young, right? You were how old at the time? I maybe was like 24. Okay, that that's young. I was working in between undergrad and law school. Okay, so you're a young, you know, smart, highly educated person. I was a lobbyist at the time, actually. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I mean, that, that's, a, that's a big X. And you said you were eager. I was eager. One of the rules of the trade is if someone's too eager to get on, on the jury, you don't want them. I smiled constantly, nodded. <laughs> I was like so earnest about my desire to serve on this jury. Yeah. What do you remember about the jury selection process that you went through? I remember that it was definitely not as intense as like the 14-page questionnaire that the potential jurors got in the Chauvin case. But instead, it was questions really about, I think, what I did, where I had been educated, whether I was sort of capable of reaching 
a verdict in the case, whether I had any sort of preconceived biases. The case, because it was a drunk driving case, I think they asked me whether anyone I knew had been a victim of a drunk driving accident. They also asked me not sort of at the intensity that the jurors in this case are getting, but they asked me about my interactions with the police, um, my perceptions of the police. So that was also relevant since the prosecution's witness was a police officer. Yeah, fairly standard stuff. But but let me tell you, you can get it wrong as a, as, as a prosecutor, of course. And I'll give you one story of a time when I got it wrong as a prosecutor. Thankfully, my trial partner got it right, if, if I may be tipping the ending here. So you don't often get to talk to your jury after they render a verdict. Some judges have different practices. Some judges will allow you to walk into the jury room after you get a verdict and talk to them. I've done that. Some judges will not. They will say, jury, get out of here. Lawyers don't talk to them. However, one of our rules as the prosecutors is you never talk to the jury after a conviction, after you've won, so to speak, because all you can do is be told something that makes you go, oh no, I have to report this to the judge. I mean, what if a juror says to you, uh, we just decided to flip a coin at a certain point. You would probably have to report that to the judge. And so it's like, you don't want to know. But we had a case where through a weird circumstance, I, I found out I was wrong. So here's the deal. We are picking a jury on a mob case. And our defendant was, I don't know if sympathetic or not. Um, I'll just tell you this. He was 80 years old, a little guy, a charming guy, but he was a powerful mob captain. His name was Ciro Perone. And it wasn't a murder case. It was a gambling, loan sharking, extortion-y type case. And we were picking our jury. And there was one potential juror who was young, like us. I tried the case with, with another young man. This juror was a young guy like us, a white guy. And he seemed super confident and cocky in the courtroom, right? You're watching the jurors. You want to see how are people reacting. So the judge is questioning this juror. And he's sort of enjoying the attention. And in the SDNY, the way it's set up, the prosecution table is in front. The defense table is behind us. So this juror, this young guy, in the middle of his questioning, gestures towards our table and says, I'll tell you something I don't like, when people think they can take a few notes on me and understand what I'm all about. So, okay, it's over, right? I'm like making a huge X on his name on the chart and sliding it over to my trial partner, who's more senior than me. And I'm like, are you kidding me? This isn't, we are striking the living heck out of this guy. No way. My trial partner, who was four or five years senior to me, said, hold on, hold on. I think I like something about this guy. He seems smart. We have a strong case. He may be a leader in that room for us. I disagreed with him all the way. I was like, you're wrong. You're crazy. I'm, I'm on record. If this jury hangs 11 to 1 and it's him, then I will never forgive you. Turns out we convicted the guy. 12-0. Fine. Great. So you can, you can infer from that that he was on board. But the wrinkle is, a year or more later, my trial partner comes in one day and he's giddy. And he's knocking on my office door and he goes, guess who I met at a party this weekend? No way. <laughs> I, said, I said, I don't know. He goes, that juror who pointed at us and said, I don't like when people think they can know about me from taking some notes. I said, you're, you're kidding me. He said, yeah. I said, what, do you, how would you even recognize that guy? He goes, I didn't recognize him. He recognized me. He came up to me and said, hey, I was a juror on a case that you were the prosecutor on. And he said, and I realized it was that guy. And my trial partner said, he said he loved our case. And he said there was a little bit of strife in the courtroom early on, but he totally like squashed it and said, are you kidding me? We have to convict this guy. So the point of that all is I was dead wrong. And the bigger point is jury selection is really a crapshoot and you just don't know what you're going to get. It's also so, so important. So 
I know we're all paying very close attention to jury selection now. Safina, next time you're on, we will be actually, I think, in the heart of the Chauvin trial itself. So we'll have so much more to discuss. Um, Thank you again for joining me. Like I said, it's such an interesting time to have a young person, a student's perspective on these issues that are unfolding every day. I'm so excited to be here again, and I love talking through this stuff with you. It helps me think harder about the stuff that I'm learning and and doing in the world. So thanks. Thanks for being with me, Safina. Talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Third Degree is presented by Cafe Studios. Your host is Ellie Honig. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The technical director is David Tadashore. The audio and music producer is Nat Wiener. And the cafe team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam ozer Staten, Noah Azulai, Jake Kaplan, Jeff Eisenman, Chris Boylan, Sean Walsh, and Margot Malley. <laughs>